Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Okay, today's reading is from starting in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 to 5 and then verse 17. And it says, the future glory of Zion. Sing, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Burst in a song, shout for joy, you who are never in labour. Because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband, says the Lord. I hope we can explain that later. (laughs) Enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your tent curtains wide, do not hold back, lengthen your cords, strengthen your stakes. For you will spread out to the right and to the left, your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember no more the reproach of your widowhood. For your maker is your husband, the Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And then verse 17, no weapon formed against you will prevail and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. And then over to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. Uh, Then Jesus came to learn and said... And the rest that's in red, so this is the important bit. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And we thank God for that amazing promise. William Carey was a famous Baptist Bible translator, social reformer and missionary who had a significant impact on the world and particularly through his mission work in India. He started schools where he taught English and reading and writing and he shared the gospel and saw many people come to know Jesus Christ and his reach was so profound that people now refer to him as the father of modern missions. He was an incredible man in many ways and in the mid to late 1700s he preached a sermon that is thought to be one of the most influential sermons of all time and it's a sermon on the same passage that we're looking at today. Isaiah chapter 54, and from that sermon that day, a fire started in his heart and in the heart of many others that has caused him to go right around the world preaching the good news of Jesus. And so I hope today that a fire would start in our heart as we look at this passage as well. Now, we don't have the transcripts of his message, um, and we don't have it recorded on iTunes since it was in the 1700s, and I think iTunes came in in the 1800s sometime. But what we do have is a famous quote that came from the two points of his sermon that have been passed down the generations. And so the two points in his sermon were these. He said that we should be people who expect great things from God. First of all, we should expect great things from God. Secondly, his second point was that we should also attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Today, really, the takeaway from today's message is exactly the same. That individually and as a church, we should expect great things from God. He is an incredibly, graciously, abundantly good God. He is a God that says he is working all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God is good, right? 
Absolutely. So we can expect great things from God. That tells me we should always be optimists more than pessimists when it comes to the future in Christ. But not only should we expect great things from God, I believe he's calling us to be a group of people that attempt great things for him. He also says that he can do immeasurably more than we could ever hope, dream or imagine. Now, like Jen prayed this morning, according to his power at work in us. Did you hear that? That he can do immeasurably more than you could ever hope, dream or even with your brain imagine according to his power at work within who? Us. It's incredible. We should expect great things from God and he wants us to be people who attempt great things for him empowered by his Holy Spirit. And so today we're going to dig into this passage and in order to understand I think we need to get a little bit of context and background about what's happening in the book of Isaiah. The first thing to know is this, that Isaiah was a prophet. He's a a guy that was called by God to speak the very words of God to his people. And in Isaiah 54, in this particular time of history, he was talking to God's people who found themselves really at rock bottom. They were in a really bad spot. They were in a divided kingdom where between north and south. After King Solomon died in about 931 BC, this glorious kingdom completely unraveled. Solomon's son Rehoboam was meant to be the king, but because of a couple of foolish decisions he made, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel rebelled against him and they chose another king. They wanted to find someone who had a name that rhymed and so they chose Jeroboam instead of Rehoboam. And so 10 of the tribes rebelled and they made Jeroboam their king. Only two tribes, the tribe of Benjamin and Judah, remained faithful to the rightful king Rehoboam and they pledged their allegiance to him. And so all of a sudden, God's people, the nation of Israel, are divided between north and south and for many years after that became competing forces fighting against each other and squabbling in many different ways. It was a bit of a mess. And so when you look at their history from that point on, you'll see that the northern tribe of Israel, the ten tribes, they consistently did the wrong thing. They did what was wicked in God's eyes. They had bad king after bad king after bad king. But when you look at the southern tribe of Judah, they kind of had a mix of both. They had some good times where they followed God. They had some bad times when they walked away from God. They had some good kings and they had some bad kings. And so Isaiah was the prophet prophesying to this tribe, the the southern tribe of Judah. And he spent 86 years prophesying to them, encouraging them to keep putting their faith in God and to return to him every time they strayed away from him. And so in chapter 54, he's prophesying to them at a rock bottom place. They are a divided kingdom. They're under the oppression of the Assyrian Empire, and they seemingly have little hope or joy or excitement about the future ahead. They were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. In verse 1, they're compared to a barren woman. But in the doom and gloom of the situation, Isaiah prophesies, and he tells them to burst into song and to shout for joy, to enlarge the place of their tent. This prophecy was a ray of hope piercing through the darkness. That even though things are are terrible right now, even though you seem to have hit rock bottom, he is calling them to growth, he's calling them to expansion, he's calling them to joy in what seemed like impossible circumstances. Seems kind of counterintuitive to shout for joy and to scream out in hope and to enlarge the place of your tent when things are going difficult. But in order to understand why that's a possibility, we need to understand that chapter 54 actually flows, believe it or not, from chapter 53. 
And when we look back at chapter 53, we see one of the greatest messianic prophecies in all of scripture about the coming of Jesus Christ. I'm going to read it to you this morning. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flick back a page to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds we are healed. We, all like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I'll give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured his life out under death, and was numbered with the sinners, for he bore the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. That's an incredible prophecy. 750 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, Isaiah speaks out the very words of God, prophesying that a Messiah would come who would die in our place, and would bear our sins, and give us hope for the future. And so in the midst of the brokenness, In the nation of Israel, here is a hope for a future in the Messiah because God will send his only son, Jesus, and you and I here today live on the other side of this prophecy. He has come, he has lived, he has died, he has rose again, he has promised to come back. And so we live in the many blessings that Isaiah prophesies about. We have forgiveness, we have grace, we have the hope of eternal life. This is the gospel, and Isaiah is announcing it, this good news to Israel in the midst of their hopelessness. And because they were reminded that God hadn't forgotten them, they were reminded that God hadn't forgotten them and that he is faithful. They could burst into song. They could be people of great joy because there was a time coming that not only Israel would prosper, but that the church would flourish. You see, prophets were men who spoke into the current circumstances that people found themselves in. But they also spoke prophetically into future circumstances. And so while there's a promise of God here that the nation of Israel would be restored, that they would get up off the canvas, a bit like Danny Green, that they would rise from the ashes, that they would prepare for growth, that their borders would expand and their people would increase if they turned back to the Lord, there's also a foretelling of the future for all of God's people to the promises they will inherit through the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so while the command to enlarge the tent was given to these people in this time, It's also an instruction to us as the New Testament church. Matthew Henry says in his commentary, the death of Christ is the life of the church. 
and of all that truly belong to it. And therefore, very fitly, after the prophet had foretold the sufferings of Christ, he foretells the flourishing of the church. And so his word to those people is the same word I believe to us today. And the word is this, that you are to enlarge the place of your tent. Jesus puts it a different way. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I command. And on this mission, I will be with you till the very end of the age. This is the mission that God has given us in Christ, to enlarge the place of your tent. In verse 2, he goes on to say, stretch your tent curtains wide. Do not hold back. God's mission for us is to enlarge the place of our tent, to make disciples, to reach a community, to care for the poor, and to see the kingdom of God expand. Now, you might have noticed in this passage that there's a a few camping analogies being used. They talk about tents and lengthening cords and and stakes in the ground and all that sort of stuff. And I feel like at this point in the sermon, I need to acknowledge that that I'm not really from a camping background. Uh, Our family, we did more glamping. Um, we call it timeshare. They have actual, um, you know, walls and a roof and carpet and, you know, toilets and a TV and all that sort of stuff. And so I grew up most of the time uh, glamping or going to timeshare on a regular basis. And, and we quite enjoyed that. And I did have sometimes uh, in my, my young life at Boys Brigade and different things at youth camps that we would do a bit of camping. But um, I didn't do much of it. And it'd be fair to say that our lack of camping has translated into our marriage. Uh, mainly because I married a beautiful woman who who um, doesn't really like camping under the stars unless there's five stars. And um, <laughs> we can't really afford five stars. And so, and that's not really true. We, we have given camping a go a couple of years ago with the Searles. Uh, at Easter time, we went to, I think it was Erica, is that right? And we camped for a couple of weeks. So we're kind of semi-experts in camping. And um, But camping's not really our thing. And I think it's true that if you ask him today about her dream weekend, it probably wouldn't include camping tents or bush toilets. But I know enough about camping to know some of the different tents and things that you can stay in when you're camping. Um, I know for single people, a lot of single people love to camp in what they call swags, really like a glorified, you know, sleeping bag on the ground. And swags are great accommodation for one person because you don't have to share the space with anyone. It's your space, you can wriggle, you can move around, um, you can export as much flatulence as you like to warm the place up, and, and no one will be inconvenienced, you can kind of marinate in that if that's what you like. Um, swags are great accommodation and cosy accommodation for one person. And so a lot of people use swags. I know when Adele goes camping, she often uses uh, a swag, and um, she's not single anymore, and I'm not going to draw her attention to that today, but... Um, <laughs> I'm in trouble. Um, but she uses a swag, and a lot of single people too. But, but when you get married, um, you've you got to let go of the swag, because that won't cut it anymore, and you progress to what they call a two-man tent. Who here has stayed in a two-man tent before? I don't know what they measure those things with. I think they measure them with guinea pigs. Like a couple of guinea pigs go in, they go, yeah, two of them fit, let's call it a two-man tent. Because I've never really shared one with a fully grown man, I must admit, but I have shared one with my wife, and I felt like all night I laid there like I was in a straitjacket, like I couldn't move. And if I rolled over, I was worried I would could have sort of crush her to death. And so I don't really think they're two-man tents, but they call them two-man tents. And I've noticed that they have like an inbuilt alarm system. Uh, usually the condensation soaking through the side of the tent, through your sleeping bag, or it dripping from the top of the tent when the sun comes out. And you're laying there snoring and drops on your head and you're like, ah, what's that? And, and you realize, oh, I can't do this anymore. I'm getting up out of bed. And so there's like this inbuilt alarm system in these apparently two-man tents. And so when you're married, you move into a two-man tent, and that's great. But once you start to have kids, that's a whole new saga, isn't it? 
Uh, you move into a four-man tent, which is really only a two-man tent, but they call it a four-man tent. And if you've got daughters, they've got their suitcase in there with their makeup and their hair dryers because they haven't quite worked out the camping thing yet. And now you're claustrophobic in this four-man, two-man tent and you're sweating and people are grumbling about not having enough space and it's claustrophobic. And if I was a salesman trying to sell camping to you today, I would be very poor. Who wants to go camping? <laughs> I'm not really promoting it very well. But you move to a four-man tent. Friends of ours are pregnant with their eighth. And that's a whole new level of insanity. You need like a circus tent. There's some weird guy juggling in the corner and a lion tamer and a trapeze somewhere in the tent and enough room for the kids. But that sounds like a nightmare to me. But in all seriousness, um, as you progress in life, as you move from a single to a couple to a married family, you need to keep enlarging the tent and when you enlarge the tent, it's going to mean it's less inconvenient, less convenient for you. And you're going to have to make space and you're going to have to share it with other people. But it's always worth it. Because when you enlarge the tent, you actually include precious people in your life in that space. And you journey together and you get to know each other at a deeper level. As a church, we want to continue to be a church that enlarges our tent. We want more people to know Jesus, to become part of our community. We want to be united around the cross of Jesus Christ. And you can jump on our website anytime, and you can click on there and look at the vision of our church. And if you look on the About Us tab, you click on that, and it'll drop down, and we'll talk about our five key focuses as a church. And then under that, it'll talk about our core values. And you'll see from the very start of this church, part of our DNA is that we wanted to be and expected to be a growing community. A growing community, expanding, enlarging as more people come to know Jesus and join in around his cross. And it seems like a no-brainer, doesn't it? You think, well, of course we do. We're a church. We want to see more people come to know Christ. We want to see people journeying in in community that can be life-changing. Of course, that's what we want. But I must say that I've been at other churches uh, in different times. I've met many people who don't want to grow. They say things like, we don't want a big church. We don't want any more people here. We're big enough as we are. I was talking to a, a person from another church in this region a few years ago, a couple of years ago. And uh, we we're talking about how much this community has changed in the last few years. Tens of thousands of people moving into our community. And we were talking about it uh, in the context of being a church in an area where so many people are moving into our region, where, where literally the nations are coming to us. And, and I was kind of excited about it. And, and she said, yeah, it's terrible. All these people moving into our area and all noisy and making mess. It's, it's just terrible. And I looked at her, thought she was joking, realized she wasn't. And I'm thinking the exact opposite. This is awesome. There are thousands of people moving into this region that don't know Jesus. And God has placed us here. And that's why we planted a church in Officer, because we believe we're going to reach into the darkness and see some of those people step into the light through a relationship with Christ. And that's the most exciting thing you can do with your life. And so I get excited about being in a growth corridor like, we're the one, like the one we're in. It's incredibly exciting. Now, I get it that people want small and they want cosy and they want intimate. And I understand all of that at certain levels. And we want people who think like us and, and look like us and act like us and talk like us and smell like us. We don't want to be inconvenienced by outsiders that come in who may not fit the mold that we've created. Yesterday I was walking the dog and listening to a podcast by Tim Keller. It was a very helpful podcast. He was talking about the fact that a church should always be more a movement than it is an institution. Now, of course, in churches, you have institutional structures, elders, deacons, members, meetings, members. All of those things can be necessary and helpful in order to see a church flourish. 
but we should always be more a movement than we are an institution. And he very helpfully described the difference between both. He said that an institution is highly structured, where a movement is more fluid and flexible. He said that an institution is ruled from top down, with the professionals at the top all the way down, but a movement grows from bottom up. He says that an institution is almost impossible to change, but a movement is dynamic and always open to change. He said that an institution is, is ruled by common rules, whereas a movement is propelled by a common vision. And the thing that stood out to me most was the last thing he said. He said that an institution almost always and exclusively exists for its members, whereas a movement always uh, and almost exclusively exists for those outside of the four walls. We have been saved by Christ and called by Christ to reach people who right now are in the darkness. That is our mission. And I think the only way that we can say that we don't want to be a church that grows is if we depersonalize people. I wondered about that lady this week and I wondered about her comment and I thought how how that might change, the attitude might change if we made it personal. If she had unsaved kids, for example, and I said to her, would you love to see your kids come to know Jesus? I guarantee she'd say, absolutely. Would you like them to be part of our church? Yes, I would. What about your parents? They're far from God. Would you like to see them saved? Yep. Would you like them to join our community? Yes, absolutely. What about your friends at work, your family friends, the people you love the most? Would you love to see them come to know Jesus in a transformational way? And I think the answer would be yes, 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 yes. And so what if at that point I said, well, unfortunately for you, we don't want to be a big church. And we've kind of reached capacity. We can fit a couple of those people in. And so if you could choose which ones you want to be saved and let us know, that'd be great because we're we're printing up a sign that's going to go on our door and it's going to say, sorry, we're too big, go to hell. (laughs) Now I know I'm talking extremes and I'm going to the extreme edge, but I think that attitude of not wanting to grow really shows that perhaps we're not passionate enough about seeing people saved. People said, oh, how many people do you want to be a follower? And I said, whatever God wants. The more the people, more people, the better that come to know Jesus. And that should be the passion of our hearts. Because we're not just reaching randoms out there. They're all someone's daughter. They're all someone's son. I feel like John Farnham. They're all someone's daughter. They're all someone's son. Ah, okay, I'll stop. They're all someone's mom or dad or friend or family member. They're not just random people out there. They are precious to God because they've been created by him in his image and he loves them more than we ever could. And so if God loves them and they're precious to him, then we should love them. They should be precious to us. To enlarge the tent, we need to enlarge our hearts. You know, sometimes I think about what church will look like in the future and I hope our church is messy as. I hope there's people in this church that are broken, I hope there's people in this church that come into here and they're not like us and they don't talk like us and think like us and smell like us because Jesus said, I didn't come for those that are well, I came for those that are sick, that need a doctor. And I pray that there's people in this church that are broken all the time and yes, they're finding healing in Christ. But I reckon in the future, if we're not offended by people in our church, then we're not doing outreach well enough because we're not going to meet people and reach people like us. We're going to reach people who are broken and hurting and lost and desperately need a saviour. And so in order for us to be a church 
that welcomes people like that in. You know, sometimes I go to churches, they do outreach, and then someone a bit different comes in from the outreach, and no one talks to them. And it's heartbreaking. We want to be a church that embraces people from different backgrounds and, and different styles and different worldviews and different thoughts, and we want to radically love them and radically share Christ with them. We're going to be a messy church. For Israel, this prophecy was for their nation to grow. But for the church in Christ, it's for every person, every nation, every background, every circumstance, even those who don't fit our neat little mold. I pray that we would enlarge our hearts for people, that God would give us a passion, that we would enlarge the tent of God's kingdom, inspired and empowered by his spirit. Just this week I read an account of a vision that William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, had many years ago. And I found it quite impacting. In fact, I felt quite emotional as I read it. And it's kind of longish, but if you hang with me today in the heat, um, I reckon it might impact you as well. And so let me read it to you today. He said, I saw a dark and stormy ocean. Over it the black clouds hung heavily. Through them every now and then vivid lightning flashed and loud thunder rolled. While the winds moaned and the waves rose and foamed, towered and broke only to rise and foam, tower and break again. In that ocean, I thought I saw myriads of poor human beings plunging and floating, shouting and shrieking, cursing and struggling and drowning. And as they cursed and screamed, they rose and shrieked again, and then some of them sank to rise no more. And I saw out of this dark, angry ocean a mighty rock that rose up with its summit towering high above the black clouds that overhung the stormy sea. And all around the base of this great rock, I saw a vast platform. Onto this platform I saw with delight a number of poor, struggling, drowning wretches continually climbing out of the angry ocean. And I saw that a few of those who had already been safe on the platform were helping the poor creatures still in the angry waters to reach the place of safety. On looking more closely, I found a number of those who had been rescued industriously working and scheming by ladders, ropes, boats and other means more effective to deliver the poor strugglers out of the sea. Here and there, some... There were some who actually jumped into the water, regardless of the consequences, in their passion to rescue the perishing. And I hardly know which gladdened me the most. The sight of the poor drowning people climbing under the rocks, reaching a place of safety, or the devotion and self-sacrifice of those whose whole being was wrapped up in the effort for their deliverance. As I looked on, I saw that the occupants of that platform were quite a mixed company. That is, they were divided into different sets or classes. And they occupied themselves with different pleasures and employments, but only a few, very few of them seemed to make it their business to get people out of the sea. But what puzzled me the most was the fact that though all of them had been rescued at one time or another from the ocean, nearly everyone seemed to have forgotten that. Anyway, it seemed the memory of its darkness and danger no longer troubled them at all. And what seemed equally strange and perplexing to me was that the people did not even seem to have any care, that is, any agonising care, about the poor perishing ones who were struggling and drowning right before their very eyes. Many of them who were were their own husbands and wives, brothers and sisters, and even their own children. Now, this astonishing unconcern could not have been due to a a result of ignorance or lack of knowledge because they lived right there in full sight of it all and even talked about it sometimes. Many of them even went to hear lectures and sermons in which the awful state of these poor drowning creatures was described. I've always said that the occupants of this platform were engaged in different pursuits and pastimes. Some of them were absorbed day and night in trading and in business in order to make gain, storing up savings in boxes, safes and the like. Many spent their time amusing themselves with growing flowers on the side of the rock, others in painting pieces of cloth or in playing music or in watching St Kilda Football Club. (laughs) I put that one in for Dave. 
and now I've lost my spot. God's punishing me. Some occupied themselves chiefly in eating and drinking. Others were taken up with arguing about the poor drowning wretches that had already been rescued. But the one thing to me that seemed the most amazing was that on the platform to whom he called, who heard his voice and felt they ought to obey it, at least they said they did, those who confessed to love him, who were in full sympathy with him in the task he had undertaken, who worshipped him or who professed to do so, were so taken up with their trades and professions, their money-saving and pleasures, their family and circles, their religions and arguments about it, and their preparation for going to the mainland heaven, that they did not listen to the cry that came to them from this wonderful being who had himself gone down into the sea. Anyway, if they heard it, they did not heed it. They did not care. And so the multitude went on right before them, struggling and shrieking and drowning in the darkness. It's pretty impacting. Describes officer. Describes our growth corridor. It describes our nation. It describes our world. And I believe it should break our hearts. That there is people that are not experiencing what we have experienced in Christ. I pray that God would break our hearts for those in our lives and in our community that are heading for eternity separated from God unless they encounter Christ. And how will they know unless someone tells them? In praying this, I'd love to see at least 20 people come to know Jesus this year through Follow Baptist Church. It's a very modest aim. I hope we smash it. Wouldn't it be awesome if this time next year there's 20 people standing on this platform testifying about how Christ had changed their life this year? That would be just absolutely incredible. Imagine if there was 50. I would encourage you to be praying into that this year, that we would actually be expecting great things from God and we'd be attempting great things for God, that we would be a people on mission, that we're not just relying on people being saved in a service, but we every day are looking for opportunities to share the gospel. Isaiah says, enlarge the place of your tent, stretch your curtains wide, do not hold back for you will spread out to the right and to the left. Your descendants will dispossess nations and settle in their desolate cities. Do not be afraid, you will not be put to shame. Do not fear disgrace, you will not be humiliated. You will forget the shame of your youth and remember the no more the reproach of your widowhood for your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. And verse 17 says, No weapon formed against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me, declares the Lord. As a church, we unapologetically desire to and expect to grow. We expect great things from God and we will attempt great things for God. We expect his tent to be enlarged in this region here in Officer and right throughout the southeast of Melbourne. We believe that by God's grace we'll grow in number, that we will reach the lost, that we will impact communities, that we will start new ministries, that we will develop disciples and that we will plant churches in new areas because they may not be desolate cities physically but in many ways our communities are spiritual wastelands and it's into that dark space that we step with the most life-changing news you could ever have about Jesus Christ. As Isaiah reminds the people, God is the God of all the earth, and so wherever we go, wherever we settle, we're going to lift up the name of Jesus. And as we step out in faith and attempt great things for God, no weapon formed against us will prosper. Currently, our leadership team is prayerfully considering a vision for the future, working through this vision, which we're going to present to our membership for input. And we're so excited about what God is going to do in and through us now, but also in the future. And because we serve a big God, I believe that he wants us to have a big vision for this region. Isaiah is painting a big vision for God's people. But if they're going to experience it, he makes it clear that they're going to have to prepare for it. And this is my second and final point today, that to grow bigger, you actually have to go deeper. To enlarge the place of your tent, you need to to stretch the curtains wide to 
not hold back. You need to lengthen your cords and you need to strengthen your stakes. The bigger the tent, the longer the cords need to be, the, the more stakes that need to go into the ground. Uh, every Tuesday and Thursday night, for those that don't know, we run a, a food van for the homeless and broken in our local community at Pakenham train station. And every week we go at about four o'clock and we set up a really big tent that people can come and sit in and, and eat and chat and build relationship. And there's a few of us to put the tent together, but once we've put it together, we have our resident professionals, um, pretty much Grant Flanagan and also Ray Granger, and their job is to stretch out the cords, to lengthen the cords, to, to nail in the pegs. And they've got to do it pretty quickly before it blows away or falls apart. But that part of setting up the tent is absolutely crucial if that tent's going to be enlarged and people are going to be included within it. And as a leadership team, we believe it's a picture precisely of where we are as a, at as a church, that we're at that stage where we need to lengthen the cords and strengthen the pegs to prepare for and enable future growth. So the next 12 to 18 months, we really see as a time of consolidation to facilitate that future growth. Our immediate goals in the next 12 to 18 months is to raise up leaders. We had our first As One Leadership Night on Monday night. Who was there? Keep your hand up if you enjoyed it. You're too scared to put your hand down, aren't you? It was a great night. It was a great night. And we really want to sow into our leaders and invest in them and see them grow in their faith and in their leadership. And so we want to raise up leaders. We want to recruit volunteers. We want to strengthen our current ministries. We want to see people discipled so that all that we do is effective and sustainable long-term. And so we can continue to enlarge our tent, enlarge our hearts to grow the kingdom, to include new family members in our church community. The next three weeks, we're going to be focusing throughout February on three specific areas. Next week is our missional community groups, our MCGs. That is our small group network, a place where we can disciple one another, share around God's word, pray for each other, and seek to be on mission together. Because we don't want to be a church that just grows wide. Just as importantly, we want to be a church that grows deep, deep in the things of God, deep in in our obedience to Christ. And so a big focus for me personally in 2017 is to to see these groups grow. And I'd love to see at least 60% of our congregation involved in a regular MCG, where you're gathering with God's people to encourage uh, one another by the word and prayer and be empowered by his spirit. There are all sorts of groups uh, from seniors all the way through to families. And next week, we're going to talk about those. We're going to have a sign-up table at the end of the day. And we'd love you to sign up for an MCG this year. Uh, the second week, um, we're going to be talking about serving in church ministries on the weekend. Obviously, our services are a big part of what we do as a church. And I hope you find them helpful. And I think most people enjoy them. Um, but you may realize that it takes a lot to put this together. as a set-up team and a pack-up team. Does anyone know today we have no power here? We have a generator that the setup team set up yesterday out there so that you come and enjoy church today. Uh, people that have set up the churches, people in the kitchen, people on the sound, people in kids' ministry. And it takes a lot to, to put on a service where people can grow. And so in week two, we want to encourage all of you uh, that are regular at church to consider serving at least one area of church life. Because we're a body and every part needs to do its part for us to function well. And then the third week, we're going to be talking about mission. We're going to highlight the opportunities we have um, already in current outreach initiatives and the impact we're already having. And once again, there'll be a chance to join up with any of those if God lays something on your heart. Isaiah prophesied into the future, a church that would flourish. Follow Baptist Church is part of the fulfillment of that prophecy. And even though its greatest fulfillment will come when Christ returns, we have been given this life and these gifts and these abilities to wring them out for the glory of God to be a people of God who are on mission to reach the world around us. There are people all around us drowning in the darkness, separated from God, 
And God's word to us today is to enlarge the tent, to lengthen the cords, to strengthen the stakes. And so I want to encourage you to be prayerfully considering how can you be involved in the life of this church to see that happen? How can you be a part of this vision becoming a reality? Because as a movement, as a church, we're going to expect great things from God and we're going to attempt great things for God in his name. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just thank you so much for everything you've done in the life of our church in chapter 1. We thank you for the many great things that have happened. We thank you for the many lives that have changed. We thank you for the impact that you're using us to have in this local community as we go into this place as your ambassadors, serving in your name and for your glory. Lord, I pray that that would be our focus all the time, that our vision would remain steady on you, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would enlarge for people all around us in our lives that don't know you, that are right now separated from you. Lord, I pray that you give us boldness, that you give us wisdom. You say, don't worry about the words to say. As you step out, I'll give you the words to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. And so, Lord, I pray that we're both bold and courageous and willing to share our faith knowing that this is the greatest news ever. So, Lord, I thank you for the impact we're going to have in the future. Thank you for those that are moving into this region right now that are far from God and they have no idea that you put a target on their back and that you're going to bring them across our path or across the path of other churches in this region and they're going to come to know you. And one day they're going to be here worshipping you. And, Lord, we are so excited about that. So, Lord, I pray that we wouldn't be so distracted by the things of this world. That, that, would, that wouldn't be a priority. But I pray, Lord, that we would restructure our lives for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.